Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of the Project MedTech Podcast. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. On March 1st, we will be creating separate channels for the Project MedTech podcast and our MedTech Money podcast. So if you are a fan of both podcasts, please search Project MedTech on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe to your favorite channels. You can also find both podcasts on our website. In this episode, our guest, Karen Deep Singh Bodwell, and I discuss comparing regulatory at a startup versus large organization, the growth of strategic regulatory departments, software and AI as a medical device, how companies straddle the line of being a medical device versus not, how various regulatory bodies are dealing with the rise in software as a medical device, why the FDA is doing such a great job in this space, a common error he sees with companies with software as a medical device, his background on how he launched his own regulatory practice, his favorite thing about being a consultant, and so much more. So without further ado, my discussion with Karen Deep Singh Bodwell. Medical innovation starts with medical discussion. Talking about the future Karen Deep, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on, Duane. How are you today? I'm, I'm doing great. Um, so uh, let's uh, first chat uh, just a little bit about, you know, give the listeners a, a background on, on who you are, uh, what you currently do, and how you got there. So hi, I'm Karen Deep, and I'm based in the UK. I'm a quality and regulatory consultant working within the medical devices space. In terms of my journey, I started off working within big companies such as St. Jude Medical and Abbott working with traditional devices, you know, pacemakers, defibrillators, deep brain stimulation. And from working from those traditional devices, in the past year and a half to two, I started getting involved within software and especially artificial intelligence. And that was due to a surge in demand. And there's various reasons for that demand. There's a lot of government funding going about. Also, there's a lot of companies out there who are now developing apps with a medical purpose and not realizing that they are medical devices and need regulation. And number three, at the moment, artificial intelligence and software seems to be the craze, and it seems to be the bandwagon that a lot of companies are now jumping on. Fantastic. So um, before we move on to software and AI, which is a big reason why I wanted to have you on, um, what was it like? Were you you a part of St. Jude and then became a part of Abbott through the acquisition? Effectively, yes. So the day I joined St. Jude Medical, a week later, it became Abbott. But what was happening was a lot of these St. Jude Medical products just changed their branding, but the company was still somewhat operated as a separate entity. And then eventually Mm -hmm. it became Abbott Medical, and I believe now it's called Abbott Vascular. So even though they were bought out by Abbott, it was still treated as a separate entity in a sense. Understood. And um, okay, so, you know, what was it like doing regulatory um in a large organization like that right um and and i'm also curious on um when you so you left two years ago so i left abba in 2017 oh 2017 so so about five years ago 
Were, did did you the, the second question? So first question is is what it's what is it like working in a a large organization like that in their regulatory department? You know how does that compare to maybe a startup? And then this the second question is, did you see the regulatory regulatory department tart start to shrink at all? Um, like they started to outsource it a little more. If anything, no. I actually saw the regulatory department actually grow so a company like abbott has a very strict reputation when it comes to something like quality and compliance these guys do not mess around they would happily put the product on a shelf and make sure the quality the regulatory the safety is in place before letting that product hit the market and that's something that they have a reputation for and in terms of your initial question how did it differ from you know working with a startup company or working with a large regulatory company the problem with these big companies, I find the regulatory departments are so huge and there's so many managers and sub-managers and vice presidents. For a change to take place would often take weeks or sometimes months because there's so many signatures and meetings and so much input that's needed. With a startup where you've only got a team of about five to ten people, there's only probably a couple of regulatory guys and decisions are made within days and sometimes within hours. Wow. Okay. Very interesting. Um all right, great. So let's kind of dive into um, software and 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 AI, right? So this is this is an area that is extremely hot. Um, I see a lot of companies that um, kind of teeter the line, right? And and they they could be software as a medical device, or they could be like an, a, cl- a clinical assist device, or, or or something along those lines. And I guess that's strict to the the FDA, but. Um, Maybe lay the groundwork for just at a high level, you know, the various definitions of, of software as a medical device to maybe just something that's just digital health and not classified as a medical device, a clinical assist device. I mean, I don't know. So I'm asking. <laughs> and maybe there's other terminologies that you think are key, but maybe lay, lay that groundwork for us. Perfectly. If you go by the definition of at least of the EU and the UK follows a somewhat similar one, a medical device means any instrument, apparatus, appliance, implant, or product basically to be used alone or in combination for human beings for one or more of reasons, which include diagnosis, prevention, prediction of disease, or for the treatment of injury or disabilities. So that can be quite a loose term. And Effectively, what you're saying, so in the UK, at least, we have something that's known as sort of fitness, health, or well-being products, and there's also a similar place within the FDA. And it's really driven by the claims that you're making. So if you're making claims such as preventing injury, improving recovery, you know, providing specific diagnostic information, you are basically edging onto a device. If you've basically got a similar product, but you're making claims such as increased motivation to exercise or may improve quality of life or general mobility, then you're edging on what's to known as a wellness product or it's just a general software effectively. So it's all driven by the intended use. If you're diagnosing anything, if you're treating anything and what claims you are making, that basically what drives what medical device you are, what risk classification you are. And even if you're a medical device at all for that matter. Okay. And, and so I've seen other companies um, kind of take a stepwise approach towards bringing a software as a medical device to market, right? So, um, you know, for example, if you have maybe some type of, let's just take a like diagnostic imaging uh, algorithm that's going to, you know, um, identify cancers on on some type of image, right? Um, 
And, and basically what they'll do is they'll say, hey, we're not diagnosing anything. We're just supporting the physician and making the decision. And then once they get more data, then they might try to go to that next claim. Can you kind of walk through that? Have you seen something like that? Did I just butcher that? Uh, but but I, I think I've described it to what, what, what the startups have done. It effectively depends on what it's doing. So, for example, if it's something like a pap smear, you know, a radiologist, if it's just an app where they're just viewing that, that's perfectly fine. The moment that app starts detecting or drawing circles saying, hey, this looks like an abnormality, straight away it's a medical device. So, effectively, what you're saying is I often have seen with some of my clients where they maybe have a feature of their medical device with certain features or claims turned off, and they put it out there on the market to see how the market responds to it. And then in the background, there's work on regulating it and then effectively releasing the full version of that software with the claims added on. So, yeah, that is quite commonplace. Okay. And 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 um, so how have you seen uh, specifically, you know, the FDA and, and, and the EU and um, I guess now the UK, right, because they're, they're separate um, and maybe any other um, uh, uh, regulatory body that you work with, how have you seen them adjust to this, this like influx of a ton of software as a medical device slash digital health, uh, you know, devices come into the market? Um, have you been impressed with it? Uh, you know, do you think there needs to be improvements? You know, what are your kind of thoughts around that? So a bit of background. So as people around the world will be aware is that we had Brexit at the end of 2020. So the UK is no longer officially part of the EU. What's interesting is also the EU was also working on the medical device regulation, which sort of changed the framework when it comes to regulating software. That was supposed to come out on the 26th of May 2020. Due to various reasons, the pandemic, COVID, etc., and backlog of notified bodies, they delayed that to 2021. So what that meant is when the UK had actually left the EU, what actually happened is they stuck to the old medical device directive and then the EU had actually switched to the new medical device regulation. Now, the medical device directive was over 30 years old. It didn't really address software. And in those days, people didn't really think, you know, software in itself would be a medical device. It used to be something that was used for maybe operational purposes. So what actually happened was the EU actually tightened up on that. So the EU under the MDR came up with something known as Rule 11, which basically said, Software intended to provide information which is used to take decisions with diagnosis or therapeutic purposes is to be classified as a class 2A. So as a bit of background, within the EU, we have three classifications of medical device, class 1 low risk, class 2A, which is basically a medical device to be worn up to 30 days, which is a medium risk, class 2B, anything over 30 days, and class 3, which is the highest risk. Class 1 devices are self-certified. So there's no notified body audit. You simply just register with the competent authority. So for example, in the UK, the MHRA, and you're on the market. Of course, you're expected to have things like technical files and a quality management system in place, but no one really is inspecting you. So there were a lot of companies that were just going under the radar, registering, and not necessarily having those technical files in place. What's now happened is these softwares and medical device companies are now required to be audited within the EU which means that the technical files are coming under scrutiny. They are getting looking into it. So I think the EU has taken the right approach. But since the UK has stuck under the old MDD, a lot of these devices are still class one in the UK. So a lot of them are self-certified. A lot of them may not have technical files, which are effectively up to date, et cetera. So 
Can you say that the UK currently has a strategic advantage for software medical devices? The answer is possibly so. In terms of tackling it further, it seems like the EU is currently proposing a regulation. So on the 21st of April 2021, they're going to be proposing a new AI regulation, which is going to be dealing with that. The UK in the background has said within June 2023, they're going to come up with an updated version for medical device regulation, which very likely they're going to be tackling software devices because the MHRA, that's the UK Competent Authority, has talked about that. And I think the best part of the world that's dealing with this is the USA. If you go onto the USA website, there's tons and tons of guidance for cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, software as a medical device. I've been on calls when I've been doing things like requests for designation for medical devices. And the FDA, in my opinion, seem to be the most knowledgeable and the most forward thinking when it's coming to artificial intelligence and software devices. Awesome. Well, okay, so a <clears throat> lot to unpack there. Thank you so much for that. Um, UK, that seems like that'd be a great place to go to market then because you can collect, continue to collect more clinical data, right? If you have that, if you have those, those inputs set up correctly, it'd be a good way to continue to build your algorithm. Um, if it's a class one versus, you know, if you're, if you're in the EU, it's a class two. Um, so that's, that's really interesting from a strategic standpoint. Um, and I also appreciate the insight on the U.S. market as well, right? Um, I, I've talked to a few few companies who are in this space, and and they had similar feedback about the U.S., but I just wasn't sure how it compared to to EU or the U.K. or anywhere else. So um, I appreciate all this insight. Um, let me ask you this too, I because I, I, I don't know a ton about. AI, machine learning, uh, you know, algorithms in general. I have a friend who's a software engineer and, and we've had some pretty in-depth conversations about, you know, so so what is the risk? You know, what what keeps the regulatory bodies up at night when they think about um, artificial intelligence or, or machine learning? What keeps the companies up at night who are bringing these products to market? And And my basic understanding is, um, you know, if you're, if you're diagnosing cancer, right, there's, there's the risk that it's, it's negative, but you identified it as positive. Um, and it's positive, but you identified it as negative. Right. Um, and I guess that's the risk for humans as well, but for whatever reason, there seems to be like a tolerance for human error, um, with with the general public and not so much with computers right so just maybe what what's your perspective on on you know what keeps these people up at night when it comes to um machine learning artificial intelligence in the medical device space yes so that's a very good point that you've touched on the modes of failure from a traditional device and a software or ai device are going to be completely different and it was a challenge that i faced coming from traditional devices into software where if it's a pacemaker it's quite easy to see what the modes of failure are you know it can give somebody an electric shock it may just turn off completely therefore not support the person with the software is different like you've touched on you can have false positives you can have false negatives the algorithm may get changed so it may start making incorrect calculations so there is a certain fear, but at this current moment in time, artificial intelligence and software is not designed to replace the physician. It's more of an assistance tool. So the physician is still standing there. They are still the final decision maker. They are just using the software on the artificial intelligence to help themselves. 
And I think the difference here is people need to understand the difference between just the general software and artificial intelligence. General software is basically a fixed algorithm. You know, you program it to do a certain task and it's going to keep doing that task again and again and again, regardless of whether it's wrong or right. It's just going to do exactly what you tell it to. Artificial intelligence is different, is that it's constantly learning. It's constantly improving that algorithm for better or for worse. So consider it like a black box. You've got an input, something goes into this box, and then you've got an output. Within that black box is where all the calculations are taking place. So I suppose there is a certain fear that artificial intelligence can go wrong. What if it starts thinking in one direction and starts making incorrect diagnoses, like you said? But like I said, at this moment in time, that physician is still there. So they will be able to see that the artificial intelligence or the software is failing and put it to one side. Can that change in the future? Will it change in the future? It seems likely so. But at this current moment in time, the physician is still the final decision maker. Yeah, that's 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 a interesting point because that physician is still there or, or that end user is still there to intervene. And that was something that... Um, in, in, a, in a couple previous lives ago, um, we were working with a company that um, essentially took inputs and that altered the amount of drug a person was getting, right? And the FDA was, was very worried that the fact that there was no, you know, intervention, there was no human intervention step that could say, hey, that's not right, you know, and, 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 and then they could kill it. So they, they ultimately ended up putting that in and it, it kind of made the FDA a little more uh, at ease. Like it, it was pretty much the closed loop conversation, right? They didn't like the idea that it was a closed loop system. Um, now, I think they've approved, you know, four or five closed loop systems at this point now, but, but there is still, you know, those like shutoff valves, right? Essentially, right? Where, where it's a little more in control. And I assume that's pretty similar to what you're describing with AI, correct? Yep, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, great. So what else? I, I want to actually, I, I, I want to spend some time to diving into you leaving uh, a, a company, right? And starting your own practice as a regulatory consultant um, and a little bit about that journey. But is there anything else on, on this digital health software as a medical device front that that is, is you know, you want to kind of let the listeners know about? Yeah, so common mistake that I'm finding is companies are often approaching me and claiming to be a software as a medical device only. Once I start working on the intended use statement, I often find there's a physical element involved and companies are often forgetting that. And the most common one is something known as a programmable electrical medical system, known as a PEMS effectively, which is often combined with the artificial intelligence or the software device. So that's effectively in many cases just a data collection tool. So maybe if it's treating lung conditions, it might be an apparatus that you breathe into to be able to get your airflow rate. What people don't realize is that now that you have a physical product, there's a lot of systems that need to be updated. So your quality management system, when you're dealing with recalls, et cetera, you're now dealing with a physical product that could be in the hands of physicians. You're not just dealing with the software that's maybe on an online platform that you can turn off immediately if it goes wrong. You're now having to deal with that physical product. Also, you need to look into things like biocompatibility because it's going to be touching parts of the body, electrical and mechanical safety, and of course, the standard of ISO EN 60601-1, which is medical electrical equipment. So that's one mistake that companies are often making is that how exactly are you collecting that data? If there's a physical tool involved, there's a lot more regulation and a lot more into your quality management system that you need to consider at the start. 
Yeah, that's, uh, that's great advice. Um, and I think that I've seen something similar to this, um, on, on two occasions now. And, um, both of those companies were tech folks coming into medical device. So they were essentially coming from a unregulated industry into a regulated industry, um, and a unique industry for that matter. Right. So, um, I think that's, that, that's great advice to, to leave the listeners on from a, um, you know, med, med tech, uh, perspective. So let's, let's, let's learn a little bit more about Karen deep. Um, so you, you left in 2017, right. Abbott, um, and, and where did you, where did you go from there? Did you, is that when you opened your practice or is that when you went to a different company? So then I actually, so I opened my practice in 2018. So I started, what I used to do was I would work full-time and do consulting part-time. And how it kind of started was in 2018, I joined a company called BioEpic, which was basically, it was able to get your blood glucose reading from a camera. And that was my mm -hmm. first dose of software as a medical device. Prior to that, I didn't really know much about software devices, et cetera. And it was just okay. there, I kind of got the bug for this software and AI and I started to go online and it was just almost like a sense when you start a new hobby and you discover this new world and these new applications and things that you perhaps didn't know about. And I just found it interesting of this concept of how software alone could be a medical device. So I was working full-time through BioEpic and then I was doing my consultancy part-time. And it was around sort of late 2019 where it got to the point where the consulting was starting to take over my full-time job. So I recall sometimes I was doing 70 to 80 hour weeks and that was basically a cue for me to say, you know what, the consulting's picking up. I'm, And this was around the time I started doing content on LinkedIn as well. So indirectly, I was getting a lot of work coming in. And it came to the point where there was enough consulting work for me to be able to replace my full-time job. So I left my full-time job and just went straight into consulting from that. Wow. Okay. So, but, so that's, that's great. I, I, the, the, um, something similar happened for me at Project MedTech, right? And how I got into there, but, but. So, so still though, even, even if you have your, your, okay, there's a ton of consulting work coming in. I mean, it's still a big jump, right? It, it's still, it still has to be nerving to, I mean, you can, you can de-risk it all you want, right? Of making the jump into entrepreneurship, but, but there's still a risk once you, you know, you're, you're still kept up at night, right? Thinking about, well, where's the next project going to come from? Where's the next next project going to come from? I mean, did you have that feeling? How did you combat that? Um, did, are, are you, have you expanded? Are you more than just a team, just you now, or, or kind of give us a little bit of that detail? Cause I'm always fascinated on, on the entrepreneur journey, right? And, and that, okay, I'm going to do this type of moment. Yeah, I completely agree with you. The thing is, when you have a full-time job in a particular place like the US, you know, health insurance, that's a big factor of it. You know, in the UK, we're quite fortunate our healthcare system is free, but there's also other factors involved. There's pension schemes, you know, I know how much money is going to come at the end of the week or the end of that month, etc. I know that if I have a problem on my work base, there's going to be HR people that I can speak to or a customer being rude to me. I don't really want to work with them. I can report that to somebody. When you go into your own consultancy, I'm everything all in one. I am the HR person. I am the finance guy. I'm the accountancy guy. And one thing I didn't factor for was admin hours. You know, when you go to work, you work 40 hours, 50 hours, however it may be. As a consultant, there's hours where I'm not being paid. That's me doing my bookkeeping, my accounting, you know, searching for that next contract. And again, you know, I'm looking at the income levels. Of course, as a consultant, you do earn more, but it's up and down. 
You know, the income is never fixed. I'm never going to know, is there going to be any money at the end of that week? Number two, of course, with any company, when they start having, you know, financial problems, the first thing to do is get rid of their contractors. I didn't factor that in. I was making the mistake of just having maybe one contract on the go or two contracts on the go. And sometimes you would lose them for whatever reason if the company was having financial issues. So yeah, getting to grips with things like that and having multiple clients, you know, I go to work, I work for one company when I'm full time. As a consultant, I've got 10 to 15 companies on the go. Um, you've got to deal with things like especially in quality and regulatory, unannounced audits. You know, sometimes I have some of my clients call me saying, Karen, we need you in London. And that's like a two hour drive. We've just had this unannounced audit. I'm like, whoa, whoa, guys, I've just got out of bed. And it's, you, you got to deal with these factors. And it, I suppose it's, it is quite scary. But then at the same time, is I've always been the person to enjoy a challenge. I've always been a sort of high risk, high reward guy. And I don't, I'm not necessarily a risk taker, but... I believe that if you've done your calculations right and you can take a calculated risk, then it's something you get into. But I warn everybody, consultancy and entrepreneurship is not for everybody. So think twice before you jump on the ship. It is very rewarding, but it definitely comes with its downsides too. And 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 what's your what's your what is your favorite thing about it? Right. So so we kind of talked about, you know, the risk and 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 the nerves, but but what is the the payoff or like what is what is the the your favorite thing about having it now it's the constant diversity when you work with one company you're often just working with their product portfolio or their speciality with consultancy i'm working with multiple different clients so you know one guy's making a pacemaker you know one guy's curing cancer one guy's working with lung conditions and that's what i love about it and particularly when you're a consultancy you often work with startups because the huge companies the abbots etc they have the money, they have the resources to get full-time regulatory staffing. The startups may not, you know, it might just be a guy and his friend who's just come up with this company and they don't necessarily have the resources to bring in full-time regulatory staff or at least somebody's experience to the level of submissions. And I suppose that's what it is. It's just the constant diversity. And the startups is where a lot of the innovation happens. You know, these big companies often have a lot of roadblocks along the way when they want to bring a new product to market. But the startups, you know, the kind of products I'm seeing out on the market and to be a part of that, you know, when I'm basically directly bringing a product out onto the market that's going to be helping people's lives that in itself is rewarding more than the sort of financial benefit of being a consultant yeah <laughs> that's uh that's great I, I i love that and um it's uh it's always nice to hear people like i mean this is if, if someone asked me that question i'd almost give the exact same response right i mean so so it's always fun to hear that um okay and and so have you have you expanded now at this point? Is it more than just you? So yeah, how okay. it is, is at the moment, it's, it's effectively just me. So I'm doing the quality and regulatory, but I also work with other contractors. So I've got clinical experts, I've got, got people who work in intellectual property, etc. Okay. But even my own mentors are saying it to me, like, Karen, you seriously need to take some time off. I mean, <laughs> in 2021, the only days I had off was Christmas Day, Boxing Day. I mean, even during days off, I'm still working half days. And I suppose... Yeah. That's the thing. If you're just one guy, you know, I'm constantly answering emails, phone calls, doing the work. Yeah. And especially when you start working with international clients, the day never stops. And eventually that will catch up with you. So I am looking to maybe bring somebody on board to at least assist me, even that's just a part time basis or at least somebody to just do a bit of admin for me. So, yeah. But the sure. way I structure my work is three ways. And this sort of helps me when it comes to that part of, you know, going into contracting and making sure there's a source of income. So number one is I have fixed term contracts where I maybe have a retainer with a company. I'm going to work, you know, five hours, 10 hours or 20 hours a month with you. 
usually as a person responsible for regulatory compliance. That's the EU MDR requirement where you need someone in the company who's like the go-to guy for quality and regulatory. Number two is I still work with other consultancies and sort of these huge consultancies always have a constant influx of work. So every week we'll just have a call and they say, okay, currently what's your capacity looking like? And I can fill that in. And then of course, number three, which is traditional approach is people approaching me directly. But having a method like that, I've always got the constant influx of working and I can kind of pick and choose my hours. So I think that's probably the best way that people who are early to consultancy should do it. But yeah, like you said, am I expanding? It seems like over the next few months, I will be bringing in employees. And in terms of expansion, I'm still seeing how it goes. So just like you as well, I started my own podcast back in May. Also got the YouTube channel and do a lot of content on LinkedIn. So maybe that I back off the quality and regulatory bit and maybe move towards a concept, but I'm just going to see what the future holds. Yeah. Awesome. Um, before I, I, I want to get into that as well. Um, but before we do, so, so where are your clients? Do you, I mean, you're obviously based in the UK, so I'm guessing you have a, a good amount of clients in the UK, but I'm sure you work with companies in the US, Europe, all over. Is that, is that kind of what you're doing? So it's primarily UK, EU and USA. And that's not strictly to say these companies are based in those regions. It would just be, so it could be a company, let's say, based in South America who wants UK or EU approval. So I've got clients all over the world effectively, but nearly all the work that I do is UK, EU and USA is what I specialize in. When it comes to areas like Canada and certain parts of Asia, that's usually something that I would pass on to somebody who's sort of more specialized in that region. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Got it. Um, yeah. So let's talk a little bit too um, about your uh, your podcast, the videos you do on LinkedIn, the posts you do on LinkedIn, the YouTube channel, right? You, you've, you've kind of put this focus towards content. Um, obviously, <laughs> you know, we're on we're on a Project Medtech podcast, so I feel the same way. Um, but what's your experience with that? Why did you do it? Do you see a a business development type of of uh, you know kickback from that? Uh, maybe talk a little bit about that. Sure. So what actually happened was that the reason I started doing content was around sort of 2017, 2018. I would I was one of those guys who went kind of straight into quality and regulatory, which is now becoming more apparent. But back then, sort of 2015, 2016, majority of people who worked in quality and regulatory affairs or people who fell into it. So maybe they worked as an engineer for five years or 10 years and they came on to regulation or maybe they're working in a production facility and then started to learn about GMP, ISO standards and went in. I was one of the very few guys that kind of went straight into quality and regulatory. So I was often having students coming up to me saying, currently, what does ISO 13485 mean? You know, how do I get a job within quality and regulatory affairs? This is an area that I'm interested in. And I was kind of getting the same questions again and again. I was thinking, well, these are the guys who are sort of ready to approach me, but how many other people are there in the world who maybe got the same question? So then I started doing video content. I started appearing on other people's YouTube channels and podcasts answering these questions. So Rather than me having to type out 100 emails, it was easier for me to just create a video and just send that out to everybody. Now, indirectly, as a result of that, a lot of my audience happened to be people that worked in search, people like recruiters, the guys who are going to be finding me, the contractors, CEOs of companies who maybe don't know anything about quality and regulatory and want to know what a quality management system is and why it's important. And then people started to read, I said, hold on a minute, you know, currently knows what he's talking about. And then indirectly, that started bringing a lot of work my way. So the intention wasn't necessarily business development, but that's how the journey turned out. And like you said, when you probably started Project MedTech, your goal when you first started it to what it is actually now are two completely different things. No, it's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, the, the path. It, it felt like every month 
timelines were moved up, right? There was always plans to do certain things. And then those changed ultimately. And those timelines were always five years out. And then all of a sudden it's two years out and then it's six months out and then it's a month out. And it's like, now we're full time, <laughs> you know? So, um, it's crazy how those things work. Um, but I also think that, uh, uh, you know, putting out good content for the industry to consume, that is the best type of business development, right? Being a subject matter expert or just putting or, or, or getting other subject matter experts and, and, and giving them a platform to talk on, you know, at the end of the day, that that's what I found the most value in was, you know, people can, people will sometimes do a podcast and then I'll fizzle out after six months or they'll, you know, they'll be really good about putting out content, but that'll fizzle out. But if you're consistent and you continue to do it and you put out good content, when the dust settles, people will sit there and say, Oh, you know what? I've seen like 30 videos from Karen deep. Let me reach out to him and see if he has the answer for me. And, and then I, so I think there's that aspect and there's also just being an aspect of it being a good person. If you, if you open up your network to others, um, you'll, you'll get good karma in the end. Right. I mean, I get a, a ton of people who reach out to me, um, for things that are not under project MedTech's umbrella. Um, but we, we, you know, I make recommendations to the people I know in the industry and it pays off for them and, and, you know, good karma will come back. Right. Uh, it's, you don't want to build your whole business on good karma, but, uh, you know, you probably can to a certain extent. <laughs> <laughs> At least that's my opinion. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's really cool to see. So where can people find you? Obviously I'll include a link to your LinkedIn, um, in the show notes. Uh, so, so for anyone who is, um, you know, just scroll up or down an inch, depending on what platform you're looking on, you can click on Karen Deep's LinkedIn, um, website wise, what's, what's the website to go to? actually don't run a website at the moment because okay <laughs> linkedin yeah. is just so busy that if like yeah. i mentioned it's just me on my own at the moment if i create yeah. a website i won't be able to deal with the workload and i'll be very open <laughs> with that <laughs> which is a brilliant position to be in but you know yeah in the future right. i'll recreate one but linkedin is the way to go uh, if you okay. want to follow my podcast is on all major platforms spotify apple etc it's called the medtech podcast okay. uh, you can follow me on youtube which is qra medical which is what my company is called but what okay. my YouTube basically is, is the videos that I have on LinkedIn. And the reason I put them on YouTube is for people to be able to share that outside of the platform. Got it. Got it. Okay. And and for LinkedIn, is it just your personal page? Or do you also have a QRA medical page? Yep. So I've got a QRA medical page and I've also got, got a it. page for the MedTech podcast. But like I said, everything that I post on LinkedIn will be on my personal page too. Okay, great. So I'll, I'll include links to all those just so you have it as well. Um, and I think that is it. So Karen Deep, hang on for, for, for one minute. We'll chat offline once I stop the recording. But thank you so much for your time, I guess, this afternoon um, where you're at. And um, yeah, I, I personally learned a lot. So I hope the listeners did too. Thank you very much for your time, Dwayne. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at projectmedtech.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.